Hi everybody and welcome to episode 4 of my podcast, Threads of Autism. Today's episode is titled Finding the Right School and EHCP Basics. I could make this very brief, one minute podcast and say, well, there's no such thing as the right school. But that, um, that wouldn't be terribly helpful and it's not entirely true either. It just takes an enormous amount of investigative work. And I think my own personal advice on what to expect is to simply know from the beginning that your child is probably, <laughs> especially if you're in the UK, going to change schools more than the usual once, primary to secondary standard stuff. Know also that there will only ever be a few, maybe even only one or two real gems in the form of either a teacher, a TA, teaching assistant, um, a Senko, headmistress, etc. There, you know, that will come along that will truly um, support you, get your child, fight your corner and be a pleasure to work with. Um, very, very few and far between. The rest of the, uh, shall we just call them others, in the system around additional help for children with extra educational needs is, um, yeah, <laughs> it's a tough one. You know, um, my, my advice again there, um, when your time comes, is to be ultra, ultra polite, always and on every occasion. You know, kind of standing in the passport, you know, at passport control, kind of polite. Um, they unfortunately are the people with all the power. There are boxes that simply have to be ticked. And you are going to get nowhere with, um, you know with a bad attitude and and by expressing your your frustration and exasperation because those are exactly what you will be feeling and the reality um, is that this system in the UK is completely inundated um, the local authorities and councils are filled with you know ill-equipped staff they are understaffed they are budget strapped and it's tough. It's just really tough. Unfortunately, you know, the whole, the whole thing isn't designed to be this way, but um, you're going to have to work very hard to get your child's needs met and for them to take on board who your child is. Um, and we'll go into that a bit more in a minute. You know, I'm sure, you know, perhaps you've already heard about the kind of doom and gloom and stress and strain that special educational needs is um, or if you haven't and you're completely new and fresh to this that's probably already the vibe you've been given but it's important to also say that actually you know we're extremely fortunate in the UK and the laws that have been written updated and are challenged around autistic people and children with special educational needs is really really solid and it comes from an incredibly good place and there are not many countries in this world that operate that way so you know know that yes the system's a bit 
messed up at the moment, but know that it is backed by really solid law. Um, you know, this is complete parents speak here. I have not read the whole Equality Act and whatever, Child Children's Act and blah, 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 but I, I have done a course in becoming a special educational needs assistant in a classroom and we were required to read some of it or certainly understand the basics of it. And my take from that, um, you know, what, what my perimenopausal brain can retain is that essentially, you know, the UK government believes that it is every single child's right in this country to receive not only a free education, but an education that sees them individually in the most positive light with you know at the highest potential um looking for them to reach their fullest potential and yes if you're a bit cynical that kind of you know they do that because that translates to people with jobs and earning money and supporting their economy and ha ha paying tax yes but uh, you know from a parenting perspective that's huge and um and incredible and the other thing is that none of this process around special educational needs is means-based. So the privileged few do not get the benefit of the better schools and the better specialist help. That's, that's the intention. <laughs> um, the reality is sometimes, very sadly, a bit different. And certainly not in term, terms of school acceptance and places, but, but in terms of you know, how you these days, basically, you know, I mean, I guess it's a, it's a reality, it's a fact, and that's the truth. And I'll just have to say it, it's going to cost you, um, you're going to need to make sacrifices financially. Um, because that is my best advice, the difference a private report will make to your child's needs being met and placed in the right school in today's world is vital. So I'll say that up front. The important thing to understand about that law that all of this is based on as well and, you know, seeing potential in every single child and believing that they have the right to go to the best possible school for their potential um, is to know that because of that, and again, it comes from a good place, you know, their remit in a way is to look at your child and think what is the what is the best academic, let's say, or educational way, potential, we can look at this child and start them in the school at that point um, in the most positive light, so i.e. a mainstream state school. And, and then we work our way down, if you like, <laughs> not terribly appropriate word, down from there. I mean, it, you know, it's... It's a way of sort of saying, look, we'd rather not um, work from the bottom up. We're going to work from the top down. You know, we're going to assume that your child is competent, um, perfectly able to manage in this environment at school. And, you know, when they are struggling or when something crops up, we will address that and we will go slowly but surely one notch down rather than going, you know, raising a huge big red flag right in the beginning and putting them in the, in the, in the most specialist situation. Um, and trying to work their way upwards from there back into mainstream. So that's that's basically the essence of it. What that 
translates to in reality is you spending an awful lot of time trying to prove what your child cannot do in order for them to agree that they have needs in the first place and that they need the specialist help to get those needs met. So that is where the struggle comes in because obviously that costs the government money. Right, obviously going to be mentioning quite a few words, um, abbreviations, acronyms, and I will, you know, describe what they are, but please also know that you can access them again in the show notes. I will try to sort of put little time markers as to where they are referenced in case you want to go back. Um, just sort of thinking of people brand new to this and how overwhelming it can, <laughs> it can all be. So, I mean, I think I've already mentioned a TA, so that stands for teaching assistant. Um, you know, they work in the classrooms alongside the teachers and are often assigned to the children with, um, you know, who, who require learning support. Um, we will go into uh, what is called an EHCP, which stands for Education, Health and Care Plan. It used to be called a Statement of Need. It was redesigned and upgraded and wonderfully now includes not only the child's own opinions and voice, but that of the parents too. Um, so that's a real change from the previous Statement of Need. So that's a good thing. But um again, needs, needs understanding and you need to choose your words wisely. <laughs> I will obviously have to dedicate a good few more episodes to EHCPs. The other one that will come up soon is things like um, obviously special educational needs, so it's abbreviated as SEN in caps lock. Um, your local authority, people refer to as the LA, which is basically your council. Um, that is where you go when your child reaches the age to start primary school. So in the UK, that is when they are four years old or in the school year that they are turning five. And you go onto the website and you register them for their school. Um, and for most places in the UK, although not all, I think it's actually quite sort of county specific. Um, you put your name down. I think you get a preference of a few schools, one, two, three, and... They largely work on your closeness to the school and you just pray that you're in the catchment area and on the right side of your street in order to get in, especially if it's a popular and, you know, highly recommended state primary. And yeah, it's funny to think back on how stressful that all seemed at the time. It's like nothing compared to what you're going to go through when your child has learning difficulties. But hey ho, the, the department that deals with that when you're trying to um, sort of you know that your child has a special educational need is the SEND department, so S-E-N-D in caps lock, special educational needs department. Um, and that is where you will go to um, to find out about this statement, I'll call it, which is your EHCP. Um, and to bear in mind that this EHCP is gold dust. It takes an awfully long time to get, especially in today's world. And it is a legally binding document, which is also something to bear in mind. So the wording in there has to be very precise, and, and we'll come to that in future episodes. There are two broad avenues you can go down when your child has reached the age of starting primary school, and you know they are autistic or you suspect as much. Um, you may even have a diagnosis already in place. One of them's going to shock you a bit. <laughs> And that is 
um, because it shocked me all those years ago. Um, it was the advice I was given. We were returning from Singapore to the UK. We didn't know anything about special educational needs or what to do. Or um, We were put in touch with one contact who lived in the same area that we were going back to, who basically emailed me to say, don't tell anybody, register your son as usual for his mainstream primary and wait for the teacher and the school to come to you um, about their concerns. And I was like, what the what now? Uh, no way. I mean, what, you know, it just like, hmm, this doesn't sound right. This, this is my child. How could I? Blah, blah, blah. Um, I didn't do that. And you know what? She actually, she was kind of right. I'll explain why now. And um, yeah, so... That, that is the one avenue to go down. It is most certainly in my advice if you're planning on sending your child to a private school, private independent school in the UK. Uh, one, because you might assume, and yes, okay, it's a superior education. A lot of parents are attracted to private independent schools because of that, but also because of the smaller class sizes, or you may have other children already in um in a private school and my advice there is to absolutely not tell them you know if you if your autistic child is obviously um able to you know on, on a peer sort of educationally or developmentally with with peers their own age but is perhaps going to struggle socially you know they're verbal and they possibly could keep up with the work um, my advice would absolutely, if, if that's the private school that you want and you want that for your child to, to go that route, and that is because the minute you tell them, <laughs> they'll do anything in their power to uh, not accept your child. And it is because the specialists in special educational needs in this country are in the state system. It all falls under that umbrella and that is where you will get the best for your autistic child. Again, on this point, you know, I can imagine people going, how could I say that? And that's not true. And blah. I, the most important thing, I guess, is to, have, is to have your own opinion. But in order to formulate that opinion is to listen to all you know, all the, all the advice and, and all the things people recommend and, and ways to do this. Um, and to absolutely take it all with a pinch of salt, know in your heart how you feel and, and go with that. Absolutely go with that. So the reason people don't say anything, even if their child is going into a mainstream state primary, is and it's often a common misunderstanding and that is that it, it it is only the school that can apply for this EHCP and access the specialists that will help your child in class in that school that is the case but parents themselves can also apply for an EHCP off their own backs you know the, the statutory waiting times etc are all the same um, it's just that in some cases and especially if you've got a, a good little school state primary, um, that obviously those SENCOs, so the Special Educational Needs Coordinators, obviously are closely connected with the council and the local authority and, and have their contacts and are best placed to advise you on how that process works. So 
also to bear in mind is that, you know, these are little four-year-olds and a lot can happen in six months developmentally with a four-year-old and especially on, on the social development side. And so, you know, that, that again, you know, if, if, if they're able to cope in the environment day to day, um, then perhaps that, that's no bad thing. Um, you know, perhaps you feel you absolutely couldn't do that. And even though they are going to start in the mainstream primary, you need to go and talk to the teacher on day one and let them know. Um, and again, it, it, you know, you will go for meetings with the SENCO and, and start that EHCP process from there. The other avenue is to not register your child. <laughs> For school, well, you obviously you register them because you have to, um, and then you you have the right not to take up an, a placement option and apply for the EHCP yourselves, which in today's world is all done online and through your local authority websites or gov.uk. And part of that process, um, jumping forwards a bit, will 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 lead to the council eventually <laughs> sending you a list of the appropriate schools that they feel could best meet your child's needs and you get to go and visit those schools and put your preferences down from there that all sounds smashing and it's not the way it really works unfortunately so the initial process of the EHCP um takes 20 weeks so from applying for it is basically 20 weeks until they send you back a form to say yes we agree your child actually has education you know additional needs um so that's just the beginning yeah it's many many months after that and if you think about I me mean, 20 weeks doesn't sound that long but it's it's five months and i know those deadlines were thrown out the window during COVID, so i shudder to think what they are now if they've been reinstated um, you know, you, you won't hear any sooner. You, <laughs> they'll give themselves the full 20 weeks. And often in, in, in today, I'm, you know, today's world, I'm hearing where that just constantly gets rejected as well, which again is where your private reports come in, proving that your child absolutely does have a, an additional need and is not at the same level of his or her peers at the same age. And... Once you receive that initial recognition that your child is going to be assessed for an EHCP, what will typically happen over many months afterwards is um, your child will be assessed in your own home or in the school setting by an educational psychologist, a speech and language therapist, and an occupational therapist. So... Those of us who've been on this journey a while basically refer to them as Ed Sykes, OTs and SLTs or SALTs. Those reports tend to be, they're obviously um, specialists working within the state system, a bit like the NHS if you like, and those reports tend to be, you know, a couple of pages long, maybe more, and will determine the areas of need and where your child is at developmentally. Um, in comparison to peers of his or her age and you know the recommendations that all that information and documentation ends up going to a panel or a board in the local authority um, who are meant to have your child's best interests at heart and have come to terms with who he is and want to support and find the best possible place 
for him or her. And the reality is that it is a numbers and a budget game. And they do not care who your child is. They do not even know. They're not going to remember the name. <laughs> and, you know, sometimes I think these people just get a remit, you know, even, even down to the Ed Sykes and SLTs and that. They just get a, a remit from the big boss upstairs who just says, you know what, coming into this big, I'm just imagining, coming into this huge big open plan office and going, you know what, today, nope. It's no to everyone you meet, okay? No. <laughs> we've, we've not got the budget for this this year. And they go out and, you know, what? <laughs> I mean, I don't know if this happens. This is how I imagine it because this is what it feels like. You know, that they, they basically are there. Um, you, you get the feeling that, you know, that they're treating you as if you're trying to buck the system <laughs> or get some money out of them or try and get your little precious kitty some special special treatment and it just makes it infuriates me because this is not where we sit in 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 the world and in UK society um and so they are basically looking for every opportunity to tick a box that says nope he's fine he or she's fine she can go to the local primary they're not looking to go you know who is this child um, why are they struggling? How can we help? Where can we give them a little bit of extra support? What you know? Um, so that's why it turns into, you know, a massive exercise of very specifically what your child cannot do. Usually, um, from there, you will then, you know, they they've agreed um, your child cannot mainstream. Say, for instance, and you are looking, you know, that the sort of schools go from state or independent regular mainstream schools primaries um, then you will find a number of schools around the country hopefully some in your area hopefully more than one so that you've got something to compare where they it's not just a learning support department within the school it's actually an autism unit attached to a mainstream primary these units can be uh, wonderful. Some of them are specifically designed buildings flooded with natural light, um, sensory flooring. They have um, equipment and um, offices for OTs and SLTs to assess and, you know, um, be on site. They have a head who runs the unit. But it's really important to know, um, obviously very small class size as well, typically not more than eight. Um, again, with additional uh, TAs and teaching assistants. And the important thing to note is that in order for the mainstream primary school to receive its funding for this autism unit, the children in that unit have to be able to spend part of their day in the mainstream school. They have to prove that all the children in this autism unit at some stage of their day, access or become part of the mainstream school. So something for you to think about, you know, in terms of where your child is at. Um, it works fantastically well. Say if your child, you know, as, as is often the case with autistic children, they kind of excel or have a, an interest in a particular area. So they're able to access that class, um, regular mainstream class with their peers for maths. Um, and I guess the idea is, is, is a bit more social integration and, and them feeling like they belong and that's all wonderful. But, but the reality isn't always that. And what can happen is that they can have 
um, you know, because they're cutting their costs and they're not recognizing just how highly autistic some of their children are, that, you know, that they'll never, I mean, the staff in the unit know these children will never access the mainstream. So they sort of try and get around that and get that box ticked by, you know, joining a particular class for a PE lesson. Um, so something to keep an eye on. And again, you'll walk in and visit the school, this little unit with these great facilities. And it's important to know that that little OT room with the specialist equipment and the SLT room with the swing and the whatever, they're not, they're often not there permanently. They are often just, um, you know, temporary staff. And even if they are there permanently, it's not every day of the week. And even then they are not giving your child individual one-to-one -one therapy unless it is legally agreed on that EHCP document. Typically what they will be doing is a whole class approach, which certainly in our child's case was just no. Um, yeah, so I will dedicate an episode in in what to expect from a school visit <laughs> and perhaps you know um, advice on a list of questions to ask and things to keep in mind and things to look out for so um, you can look forward to that yippee and yeah you know also to say that when the paperwork comes through and and what will typically happen from your local authority is that they will give you a list of five or six schools so your child now has an EHCP all the schools on that that they feel best meet your child's need, you know, specially chosen and you, I mean, I remember so naive just thinking, oh, fantastic. It's all in the hands of the experts now. Oh my gosh, nothing could be further from the truth. Honestly, prepare yourselves for how vigilant you're going to have to be. You're going to have to stay on top of your child's day um, every day and every member of staff that works with them pretty much every day. <laughs> sounds dreadful but it's the truth and I didn't do that initially I just assumed he was in the hands of all the experts and it was all good you know the other the other struggle that comes later on is when your child isn't coping say even within that autism unit and you know when they're in that autism unit the mainstream primary is receiving a nice big whack of funding specifically per child although no one is monitoring how that funding is spent so they can spend it wherever they like in their mainstream primary school and it actually, sadly, can become quite difficult to get your child out and, uh, and into something more suited to them. Um, but I won't, you know, <laughs> let's, not, let's not get ahead of ourselves here. <laughs> I'm so conscious now, coming up for 29, 30 minutes, and um, I've got to wrap this up when there's just so much more to say. So I'm kind of going to brain dump a bit here. Sincere apologies. I just know that most people listening to this don't have an hour <laughs> if you're the parent of an autistic child you do not have an hour to sit and listen to a podcast you probably don't even have the 20 to 30 minutes and and listen to it in you know 10 minute spurts over four days making notes on bits of toilet paper um if that's you I mean my gosh thank you for listening and and you're not alone <laughs> So I don't, I don't want to drag this on. And um, yes, so the important thing to mention, having left off with, you know, when it comes to your child being in an autism unit attached to a mainstream primary and that not being the right school for them, um, the next option from there is an autism specialist school. 
they are often um, independent, although you go, you know, through the same process. You have to have an EA, your child has to have an EHCP in order to visit the school. Um, they do not have to be in your area or even in your county. Um, so I absolutely implore you to visit them all and visit as many as you can. Know that many of the wait lists are three, four months long, even for a visit. And do your research where you can. You know, um, a wonderful place to start is the Good Schools Guide because they actually have their own edition for special educational needs. You can access it, you know, via Amazon as a book. You can access it online. It is updated. Um, um, that's a wonderful place to start. Speak to as many people as you can. Um, many of these autism specialist schools um, are set up in different ways. Um, not that that matters too much now. I'll perhaps go into a bit more detail on that in my next episode, which will be what to expect and how to how to go about a school visit, something something like that. <laughs> Questions you need to ask, things you need to be aware of and keep an eye out for. And again, I guess some of these autism specialist schools will be residential or part residential or kind of weekly residential um i guess in a, in a you know importantly to think about it as if it's sort of boarding school really um and to absolutely get get your head around what around what that is and what those involve depending on your family situation and your child's autism so those are absolutely the types of schools the reason you're going to have to stay on top of it in every single way and form and every day is because the whole thing is just this awkward triangle, triangle of communication, and triangles never work. You know, you have the parents with their child, and you have the school, and then you have your local authority or council. And, oh my goodness, the, the delays and the frustration and waiting games that occur simply because of lack of communication. And, you know, it happens because we expect the system to work so we wait for it to work and it doesn't and then we try to get involved and we get fobbed off or told it's not our place it absolutely is your place it's your child and you deserve to find the best possible school for your child and it's going to require loads and loads of phone calls you will get assigned a key worker in your local authority to handle your ehcp process and the process of uh them referring, as in sending all your child's documentation and EHCP to the specialist schools to be considered for placements. Um, they all have their own bizarre processes around this. Some of them have to be sort of once a week on a specialist transport vehicle to the school. Others have to be recorded and digitally secured and sent. Others have to be sent only by second class post. Um, you phone your key worker if you can get hold of her. It might take a few days, trust me. Um, they definitely won't return your call um, and you'll be very, very nice and polite um, uh, to find out that, no, no, they're just waiting. They've sent everything to the school. They're waiting. Um, what you need then to do is to go to the school and if the school don't want to speak to you or 
uh, don't get back to you. You drive to the school and you wait in the reception area until someone comes to speak to you because your child's paperwork will be one of many sitting on a pile on a desk, probably on the floor next to that head teacher's desk, um, and they haven't done anything with it. Or, um, you know, to be fair, in their defense, you know, each one of these applications and referrals for placements takes takes a big staff meeting. So, um, you know, or you'll find out that actually they have returned the paperwork. And then you can go back to your key worker in the council and go, I've just spoken to the school. And they have confirmed that they've sent the documents back to you on this date via this method. Um, oh, 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 you know, and if you can step in between each line of the points on that triangle and just keep things moving, just keep them moving all the time, every day, you will eventually get there. Um, there is also... Um, speaking of types of school, there is also the option of homeschooling. And whilst there are stigmas around that and people's I, you know, ideas or concepts of like, oh my gosh, I could never do it. Um, there is a fantastic setup in this country around homeschooling. So I, I would, again, as I've said earlier, keep an open mind, explore all options. And I will um, make reference to the homeschooling sort of bodies and parent groups and um, some links to websites and where you can find help in my next newsletter that will come from my website so you can just sign up to the newsletter anytime at autismthreads.co.uk have a great couple of weeks don't forget you are not alone and your child is exactly who they are meant to be